0: Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so everybody can make sure they're in fellowship, ready to focus on the word and ready to concentrate as we get into the very last chapter in Genesis. 172 hours so far. So that's not too bad for a 50 chapter book. I thought I'd be closer to 300 by the time I finish. All right, let's have a few moments of silent prayer, then we'll get started. Father, we're so grateful that we can come together, that we can study your word, that we can be refreshed, encouraged, strengthened by the things that are in your word, that your word is sufficient. it is gives us everything we need for life and godliness the scriptures teach, and that it is by your promises that we are able to uh, learn who you are and to see you work in our lives and, and to grow and mature spiritually. And Father, as we study these things tonight and understand the principles that are embedded in this chapter, we pray that you would uh, strengthen our spiritual growth. As a result, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Genesis chapter 50, the last chapter, and we will probably—I don't want to get your hopes up—but we will probably finish it tonight, which is a uh, uh, not the finish of the series, though, because what I want to do in the next uh, couple of lessons is go back and review Genesis in some summary. Messages just so we, after we've gone through and we've uh, done so many detailed studies and, and uh, dug some post holes in a number of places and went down pretty deep, now we can go back and put it all together and kind of see what we, what we learned. Uh, it's going to be interesting as I go back to review the whole book and look at what I thought the book was going to say back in, whenever that was. 2003, when I first started, we'll see what whether we had a pretty good idea of what the book was all about. I'm always what February 12th, February 12th 2003. Good. See, people are always watching every move. <laughs> scary. <laughs> it's scary. One of the one of the most humbling things that can ever happen to you as a pastor is when you're going through something and somebody repeats back to you what you said Says, well don't you listen to yourself shut up and leave okay genesis chapter 50 there's two things that happen in the 50th chapter of, of genesis the first part that covers the first 14 verses describes the uh the morning and the Uh, the burial and funeral procession or the preparation of the body, the funeral procession and the burial of Jacob in the promised land in the land of Canaan. And then in verse 15 down through 26, we have the uh, final reconciliation of Joseph with his brothers and then the description of Joseph's death and his instruction to his brothers to take care of his body and to take him back to uh, the land of his fathers and to bury him with his fathers, all of which is an expression of his faith and trust in God and his, his uh, promise. And his promise to Abraham that God would give him that land. So even though they are still in Egypt and even though uh, they are going to be in slavery, God is going to be faithful and return them to the land. So when we look at this first section, first fourteen verses, as a description, begins with the mourning of Joseph as he falls on his father's face and his instructions to how to take care and prepare uh, his father's body. That's in the first three verses. Then in verses four through six, we have his request to Pharaoh to let them return to the land, and he makes it clear that they're going to come back to Egypt because he is in a very vital role in. Uh, in Egypt, and he wanted to make sure that Pharaoh understood that they weren't leaving, but Pharaoh was very dependent upon him by this particular time. And then verses 7 through 14 describe the funeral procession, the transition, taking the body back to the land and burying it. So let's just get started. Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. There are Three verbs there. The subject of each verb is Joseph. And the emphasis throughout this section is Joseph in leadership at the time of his father's death. The transition of who's in charge of the family falls now upon Joseph. And his brothers look to him for leadership. And he is worthy of it. He is uh, prepared spiritually. And he is prepared by way of his his personality and maturity and responsibility to take the leadership of the family. So he fell on his face, he wept, and he kissed him. This is not unusual. In the Middle East, in the culture in the Middle East, people are much more demonstrative emotionally than those of us who come out of a uh, white, Caucasian, Western European culture. We tend to hold things in, and they tend to let things out. And so it's typical in throughout the Old Testament that when somebody dies, the very first thing that happens is they let out a whale, and they will rip their clothes. Now, most of us would never do that. We we try to keep it all in and not let it all out. But that's how they handle things in their passages, such as Genesis 37:34, when uh, jo- Jacob thinks that Joseph is dead; uh, 2 Samuel 1:11, when word comes to David that uh, Saul is dead; and uh, Job 1:20, when Job hears about his his children. Not only do they often rip their clothes, but then they'll put on sackcloth. So there's a very overt expression of their grief and there's nothing wrong with that. Last time I talked about, or last, actually the last two or three classes, we talked about the doctrine of death, dying, preparation for death, the testing that comes at death and dying grace as well as how we who are uh, left at the time of someone's death, how we are to grieve and we, we do grieve. It's legitimate to grieve and to mourn and to express uh, sorrow. As we went through that, I talked about the testing that comes. And you know, I focused on the testing from the aspect of the person that is approaching death, the believer that is approaching death, and how that is our final test, our testimony, how we can uh, demonstrate to others our faith, our dependence upon the Lord. But I was reminded this week by a friend of mine that there, there's another element to that test. And I hadn't quite thought of it this way, but if the Lord so chooses that when you uh, come to your final days, if it is a time of illness, if it is a time where you're hospitalized, a time when when you have to be taken care of, that has a whole different realm of tests involved in that because for many folks who aren't used to being taken care of, that is a that is a tough test is to let people take care of you and be dependent uh, and for you to be completely dependent on others. And part of what God does in those situations is he is using you as an opportunity to give them uh, to grow and to serve you and express their love so that they can grow spiritually in application of doctrine. It's also going to be a test for you so that you don't bite their head off in the process. And that is also a problem. See, that's another part of the test of the one who is uh, being taken care of, is that they don't kill the one that's taken care of them. So there's a lot of different varieties and aspects, dimensions to those, those closing tests. Well, Joseph demonstrates his grief, and it is uh, somewhat short lived. In the ancient world, they would often, the, clo- the close family would do this. They would weep over the body, and then they would uh, kiss the body. Joseph then commands his servants and physicians. The servants here refer to his, those who are in his household, who are his immediate, uh, under his immediate authority, those who take care of all of his, all of his commands. And the word for physicians here is the Hebrew word Rapha. Uh, the, that term's been picked up by a certain Christian, quote, psychiatric organization. But it comes from the, that's the core Hebrew word for healing. And the participial form, it refers to those who practice healing. So it's not really physicians in the sense that you think of physicians, but these would be the court uh, healers. And these were the ones who were responsible for the practice of embalming. Now, the word for embalming is the Hebrew word chanat, which is only used three times in the Old Testament. It's probably a loan word from Egyptian. It's used twice in chapter um, in this story from 1 through 14 it's used again in the last part, it's used twice to refer to Jacob and once to refer to Joseph and Jacob and Joseph are the only two people in the scriptures that are embalmed when you come into the New Testament the practice in the New Testament was to cover the body with various oils and spices and part of the purpose of that was to cover up the the odors and the smells of of, uh, bodily decay but it wasn't to preserve the body in the same way that embalming would take care of the body embalming had its roots in the dark mist of early Egyptian history by the time you get into the period that's comparable to Abraham uh, some two or three hundred years after the flood the, the practice of embalming is already in place By the time the Egyptians start developing their entire pantheon of gods and goddesses where they develop a theological rationale that goes with embalming where they're uh, calling upon Osiris who's the god of the dead and is the uh, god of so-called resurrection because he follows that kind of annual cyclical thing that you have in many pagan religions where uh, God dies in the fall and he's... He's dead during the winter, and then he comes back to life in the spring, you know, new life and flowers and everything. So uh, that doesn't come until much later. The whole By the time you have Joseph, though, you're into the early Middle Kingdom period. Egyptian history is based on the Old Kingdom. Then you have a period of decline called the First Intermediate Period. And then you have the Middle Kingdom, and then you have the Second Intermediate Period. And then you have the... Uh, the New Kingdom. And the New Kingdom is the period of the, like the 18th Dynasty, where you have the Exodus. So he's in the sometime in the early to middle part of what is known as the Middle Kingdom. By then, the whole practice of embalming and burial in Egypt was deeply uh, was was deeply covered in all of their religious ritual. But that would not have been the case. With Jacob, but they are going to embalm him in order to prepare the body to preserve it from decay and corruption until it can be transported back to uh, back to the land of Canaan for burial. At the time of Joseph, embalming uh, involved the removal of the internal organs. In the early phases, they didn't recognize the role of, of decay uh, as a result of the internal organs. Time of Joseph, they would cut a slit in the left side of the body, left side of the body, and they would take out all of the internal organs and then they would wash out the, the whole uh, upper cavity and prepare the body that way. By this time, they had discovered the use of natron, which was introduced into the process to help preserve the body. They didn't develop the procedure of taking out the brain and scrubbing out the inside of the skull, isn't that a pleasant thought, uh, until uh, later on in, in, the, in the New Kingdom. Herodotus describes that practice where the, uh, they would remove the brain by using a long curved hook. And every time I think of this, I always think of that image, and, and I see a couple of you laughing. If you've seen the movie The Mummy, and uh, Rachel Weiss describes it, and they just stick a long hook up the nostrils and swirl it all around and grab all the brains and pull them out. Just a vivid imagery there. But that's what they would do, and then they would scrub out the inside of the cranium, and they would take all of the different um, different organs and put them in their proper uh, uh, I think it's called canubic jars and then they would preserve those they would all be buried with the with the mummy in its in its uh, sarcophagus so that was a general process but they hadn't started the process of taking out the, the brains yet and so the canopic jars were not uh, just, in, just held the basic the basic organs but this process would not have taken 40 days, but uh, apparently that maybe in this early stage of embalming it did take that. The text says 40 days required for him for such of the are the days required for those who are embalmed. Maybe that had something to do with part of the religious uh, ritual that went along with that. But then they mourn for another 70 days. It's not 40 days for the embalming and then another 70 days for the mourning. It would have been, the, the, the 70 days would have included the 40 days of the preparation. So that's a long period of time. That is 10 weeks, two and a half months set aside for this mourning. Now when you look at Scripture, people are mourned for various different uh, periods of time. Some are mourned for a week. That's about normal, but if it's someone of stature like Moses, it was for a month. But here they mourn Jacob, For two and a half months, that indicates the respect that the Egyptians had for Joseph and all that he had done, and by association, his father. So it shows that that all of Egypt honored him, and this is brought out even more in the rest of this section. Verses 4 through 6, we see Joseph going to the Pharaoh for permission, to go back to the land of Canaan. He recognizes his position and that he is his subordinate to the Pharaoh. And before he can leave the land, says something about how the control of the Pharaoh over everybody, that they couldn't, they weren't just free to get up and leave. They, there was, uh, they were under the complete authority of Pharaoh. So in verse 4, we read: When the days of his mourning were passed, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, Please speak in the in the hearing of Pharaoh saying. I want you to notice a couple of things. First of all, Joseph doesn't go to Pharaoh. Here he's the number two person in the land. He is the vizier of Egypt. He is nobody has more power and more authority than Joseph other than the Pharaoh. So he can't go to the Pharaoh though he goes to the household and it's probably because he has been associated, With death, if we look at the Mosaic law, if someone has been, has touched a dead body or been in the presence of death, then they're ceremonially unclean for a short period of time. So it probably has something to do with the uh, customs and with the religious practices of the Egyptians that Joseph is not able to come into the presence of the Pharaoh. So he goes to his household, to his staff, uh, would be in our understanding. And he says, please go to Pharaoh and make a request for me. My father, and we have a, the, the request in verse 5, is bracketed by two uses of the word avi in Hebrew. My father made me swear, and then at the end it says, let me go and bury my father. So the repetition of the term my father brackets the request and it emphasizes the fact that he is doing this at the, at the request of his father. So he says, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I'm dying in my grave which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Three times he uses the, the uh, uh, first-person pronoun there. My grave, I dug it for myself. You shall bury me. Jacob is insistent on being buried in that particular spot. Joseph reiterates this. And he requests that he take his father fulfill his father's request. And the Pharaoh grants it in verse 6, that he go and, and bury his father and that he will come back. In verses 7 through 14 describe this this incredible procession. Now think about this. Going from the northern part of Egypt, somewhere in the Delta area, probably around um, the modern area of Cairo, somewhere up in that area and traveling east across the uh, area north of Sinai and then across to, to uh, the land of Canaan. And look who goes with him. He goes up, first of all, he goes with all the servants of Pharaoh. After I read this, I thought, well, who's left back in Egypt to take care of Pharaoh? Not too many people. It shows, again, the tremendous respect that the Egyptians had for Joseph. Now while I'm describing this what I want you to do is bring into your mind's eye a picture from the first chapter of Exodus. The first chapter of Exodus where the Jews are slaves, where they have no honor, where they are downtrodden, and where they are later on in Exodus chased by the chariots of Pharaoh. So keep that in mind. The, the, Moses is setting up a contrast here, the way they are honored in chapter 50 and the way they are dishonored in Exodus chapter 1. So all the servants of Pharaoh, the whole, the household, all the chief government officials go with him. They would be gone for uh, at least two months in making this uh, this trek to the land of Canaan. The elders of his house—that is, all of his respected statesmen, all the leaders of the uh, and over all of the different departments of Egypt, all the elders of his house, household staff, as well as all the elders of the land of egypt and, you know, if this were America, this would be uh, taking you know, most of Congress, the leaders of all the committees, uh, the cabinet. Uh, all of the chief staff from uh, the White House and from the presidential staff and all of his advisors, uh, the Supreme Court, everybody would be going on this particular uh, funeral procession. So it takes all the household of Pharaoh, the elders, the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as the house of Joseph, his brothers and his father's house and all their servants. So that means ex- with the, the only exception is going to be the wives with small ch- and, and the small children. They stay at home. Seventy came down with, with uh, Jacob, approximately 70 came down with Jacob to Egypt, and there have been a number that have been born since then, so there may be as many as 100, 120 in the household now, and so probably close to 80 or 90 went back with Joseph to the land of Canaan, and then they all returned to Egypt. So all the household of of Joseph, his brothers, his father's house, only their little ones, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Canaan. And along with them went up both chariots and horsemen. So the elite military units of the Egyptian army went along as a protection from any roving bands of marauders or bandits, but also as an honor guard. So the elite units... The cavalry, which is light cavalry or light armor, which is what the chariots would be, and the cavalry, the horsemen, and it was a tremendous gathering. And they go to the threshing floor of a tab, which is beyond the Jordan. What does he mean beyond the Jordan? Remember, Moses is writing this and finishing this when he is still outside of the land. He's over in the land uh, on what we call now the trans-Jordan, over in the, the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan, So he's writing uh, uh, from his perspective, and he's saying, okay, Hebron, where they were buried, is on the other side of the Jordan from where Moses is writing. So it's written from the perspective of Moses as the human author of Scripture in terms of his uh, geographical location. So he says, they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan. They mourned there with a great and very solemn lamentation, He observed seven days, so another week of mourning. And the words here for mourning and solemn lamentation uh, show the intense grief still over and demonstration of that grief over the death of Jacob. And it is such a magnificent profession in all of this pomp and circumstance and all of this formality, and you have... The elite troops of the chariot corps of Pharaoh and his cavalry. You have all of the household, the major government officials are all there that the Canaanites all uh, sit up and take notice when they see the, the mourning at the threshing floor of a tad and say, There's deep mourning of the Egyptians. Therefore, its name is called Avel Mitzraim, which has to do uh, with the, uh, the weeping of the Egyptians Mitzrayim is a Hebrew for Egypt so his sons did for him just as he had uh, commanded him just as he had commanded them for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and verse 13 and 14 reiterates to us it's, it's a redundancy why is this just over and over again at the end of chapter uh, 49 Jacob made a big deal about the location You want to be buried in the cave that's in the field of Ephraim, the Hittite, in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the land of Canaan. And now they repeat that in detail in verses 13 and 14, that this is indeed in the cave in the field of Machpelah before Mamre, to emphasize that Jacob is buried exactly where he said to be buried, and this is in the burial place of that field that had been purchased by Abraham. It's the only piece of real estate in the promised land, that the patriarchs, the Jewish patriarchs ever had or ever owned. And God had promised that they would own all of the land from the river of Egypt to the river Euphrates and all the land in between, all of that would be theirs, but none of them saw it in their lifetime, which Jesus then uses when he's teaching as a, as a demonstration that they understood resurrection. Because they knew God was faithful and would give them that land. And even though they didn't see it in their lifetime, it was very real to them. And the writer of Hebrews says that they, they were looking forward to that city that was built without human hands. So they understand this. This is, is real to them. And that's what the faith rest drill really is all about. That the truth of God's word is more real to us than our experience even if we don't have it, even if we don't see it in our lifetime, we know it will be true. Now I want you to remember that principle when we get to the issue of vengeance and justice at the end of the at the end of the chapter. So his sons bury him in that particular place, and after he'd buried his fathers verse fourteen summarizes, Joseph and his brothers all go back to Egypt. Now once they get back to Egypt, in the next section, the brothers now become a little worried. This reveals two things. It reveals Joseph has a true understanding of reality, that God is very real for Joseph. But for his brothers, God is less of a reality. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, when they get back, they think, well, verse 15, when Joseph's Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead... They said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did for him. As if the only thing that restrained Joseph was the presence of Jacob. What about the presence of God? God hasn't died. <laughs> Joseph recognizes that all that he has done has always done been done in the presence of God. If we think back to the episode in, in um uh, back in uh, Genesis chapter 39 when he's in the household of of Potiphar. And Potiphar's wife starts to tempt him and wants to seduce him. And Joseph's response was, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He, He had a true view of reality that didn't create a false dichotomy between the spiritual... And our everyday life and everyday decision making. God affected every single decision that you make. Unlike a statement some of our leaders in Washington have said that we want to separate our religious beliefs from our everyday decisions, you can't, if God is God and reality is what God made it and what God created, you can't separate God and put Him in a box and say, well, that's good for Sunday morning. Or that's good in my spiritual life, but that doesn't have anything to do with, with how I understand economics. It doesn't have anything to do with how I understand, uh, history. It doesn't have anything to do with how I conduct myself as a lawyer or as a politician or as a doctor or as a construction worker. And, but that's what happens. We compartmentalize. And that's what, the, what our culture has taught us is to try to compartmentalize and put God and spiritual things over here in one little corner of the attic of our mind, and then the rest of the week we're over here, and that's exactly what uh, Joseph's brothers were doing, and yet Joseph doesn't operate that way. We look at verse, verse 16, Joseph says, So they sent messengers to Joseph, saying, Before your father died, he commanded, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespasses of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespasses of the servants of God, uh, of God this, the servants of God, your father, the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to them. Now whether or not Jacob had actually said this is I'm not sure about. I think they were just making this up to try to get on, uh, make sure Joseph would do the right thing and would not carry out a long-awaited vendetta against them and uh, unfortunately the brothers understand the nature of reality that too often when people are wronged mistreated rejected when someone treats someone in a very bad way and whenever you've been mistreated whenever you've been uh, hurt in many different cir- circumstances too many people nurse a grudge and they never forget and they just seem to wait and wait and wait until they can finally bring about their little little vendetta. It's a very popular theme. They, you know, all three ver- all, all three parts of the Godfather were built on that. And that's that's a great uh, great little morale. I, I always think of the Godfather as a great morality play because it shows how this desire for vengeance and power eats away and ultimately destroys somebody. And Joseph understood this, and he has understood. Uh, grace in a magnificent way so that when they do this, Joseph recognizes how much they're still, their conscience still hurts over what they did. They're still scared. They, they still are concerned. They know they've done wrong and they can't get past it even though he's already told them once that he has completely forgiven them and his response is to weep when they when he heard this. In verse 18 we read, Then his brothers also went down, went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. And he says, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Joseph understands the principle that when we are wronged by anyone, whether it is a real wrong or whether it is just a perceived wrong, it is not our job to justify things, it is not our job to make sure they uh, they they are properly taken care of, and the person who does us wrong is uh, comes to comes to proper uh, justice. We leave it at the hands of the Supreme Court of Heaven. We do not play God, and that's what he emphasizes here. He Says, "Don't be afraid, for I am in for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me." Their motives were wrong. He's not, you know, I get irritated sometimes when something wrong happens or somebody is the victim of an injustice and people say, well, it must have been God's will. And it, it's almost as if they're excusing the wrong actions of the person who did wrong by saying, well, God allowed it. Well, that doesn't make it right. The people who do wrong are still wrong. These brothers were still wrong. Joseph is not minimizing or diminishing the evil that they did. In fact, they're very clear that the text is very clear that what they did to Joseph was wrong and evil. However, as I pointed out as we've gone through the whole Joseph narrative from the very beginning back in chapter 39, it is an illustration of the New Testament principle in Romans 8.28 that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God is in charge of the events of the universe. And even though bad things happen to good people, even though there is real evil in the world, even though you are maltreated, mistreated, abused, even though you may be the victim of incredible unjust and undeserved suffering and attacks, nevertheless, it's not outside of God's control, and he can turn evil into good. And that's the... That's what Joseph recognizes is that God allowed this to happen. That doesn't mean that it's okay. But he understands that God allowed it to happen because God had a broader plan and broader purpose, which was to take Joseph down into Egypt so that he could be there to prepare a sanctuary where the family of Jacob could come, and for the next 400 years, they would be protected from assimilation into the culture around them, because that was the problem. Remember, we saw how how Judah and the other brothers, Simeon and Levi, were guilty of acting as as bad, if not worse, than the Canaanites around them. And they were marrying marrying Canaanite uh, women, and they were just assimilating into the culture. And if they had the family of Jacob had continued to live in the land of Canaan for another generation, they would have just dissipated into the whole culture, and their, their identity, their separate and distinct identity, would have been lost. So God prepared a place for Joseph to go and for him to prepare a place for the, for the family to come and to protect them for the next 400 years until they grew into a nation. So Joseph recognizes this. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me. Your motive was evil. Your desire was evil. You hated me. He doesn't minimize what they did. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. God was working behind the scenes to make it uh, work out for his purposes. He goes on to say, in order to bring about, as it is this day, to save many people, Alive, Verse 21, Joseph says, Now therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph is expressing his loyalty and his faithfulness to the family. He reassures them that he's going to take care of their wives if they die. He's not going to execute vengeance against them or against their children He is going to deal with them from a position of integrity and a position of grace no matter what happens. He assures them of that. Well, let's stop at this point for just a minute and look at this whole issue of undeserved suffering from others. I think one of the greatest challenges that we all face at times is what happens when we go through either real rejection or perceived rejection. Now, this can be something that is very... Personal. It can involve the breakup of marriage. It can involve the breakup of romance or friendships. It can involve the loss of a job. It can involve people who were once our friends who all of a sudden uh, turn against us or people in the workplace who we thought we could trust, and all of a sudden they are using us as a stepping stone to get to a another position. There are all kinds of things that can happen where people turn against other people and we get hurt in the process. And how do we respond to that when people hurt us? Now, I would suggest that very few of us have gone through the kind of rejection and hostility that Joseph went through. We haven't been sold into slavery by our brothers and and, uh, and near family. We haven't had to live in a state of not only being a slave, but then once we're in that state of being a slave, we are unjustly accused of a crime and then go to prison for several years for a crime we didn't commit. And so Joseph had to learn that lesson that he is not going to hold uh, evil actions against people. He's not going to harbor it in his soul, and that is something that is very difficult. Some people have sin natures that just trend that way. They trend towards uh, bitterness and resentment and uh, revenge. Other people, it seems like that's not the trend of their sin nature, so it seems like it's a little easier for them to handle these things. But actually, nobody has an easy job of this. We have to think through the whole process. When we go through any type of rejection, the sin nature always reacts from this position of self-protection, going all the way back to the garden. The first thing that happens when we feel threatened is what? blame somebody else. It's their fault. Whether it's real or whether it's perceived, we blame somebody else and we try to protect ourselves by putting the blame, putting the focus on somebody else. So whether it's a real rejection, in which case somebody actually does something to us, or a perceived rejection where we're just hypersensitive because of our own arrogance and self-absorption, we believe that somebody has... Uh, done something very bad toward us we always have to keep in mind the the arrogant skills the five arrogant skills we start with self-absorption self-absorption is the basic orientation of your sin nature and my sin nature that orientation is always me first, it's always arrogance and when anything threatens me, then my defenses immediately go up and we're all Guilty of this to a different one degree or another. We get involved in self-absorption and in self-indulgence. The more self-indulgent you are, the more vulnerable you become to somebody else doing something to hurt you. Then there's self-deception. In the process of arrogance, we create our own reality. We deceive ourselves about people and about events and about things going on around us. And then when somebody does something... To hurt us, somebody attacks us, somebody slanders us, somebody actually does something to cause us to lose a job, or we have a, a marital breakup, something of that nature, then uh, we're shattered. So then what do we do? Well, it's not my fault, it's their fault. We get into self justification, and then we have to not only convince ourselves that it's the other person's fault, and they may legitimately be wrong. In in Joseph's case, he had two situations with real rejection where his brothers are truly evil. They're conspiring against him. First, they want to kill him, and then they just sell him into slavery. And then there's Potiphar's wife, and she has attempted to seduce him, and then she lies about it. So in Joseph's case, he can build a really good case on why the other person is wrong, and you need to understand why they're wrong. See, I was I was maltreated. I was abused. I was I'm a victim. And we live in a culture of victimization where everybody wants to emphasize, "Poor me! I'm a victim of what what uh, this, what society has done to me. I'm a victim of my teachers. I'm a victim of parents. Uh, my parents were divorced. I grew up in a single home. My parents didn't get divorced. They yelled at each other all the time. Uh, whatever it is, it's the parents' fault." Um, or it's the teacher's fault, or it's the kids down the street fault, or whoever it is, it's always somebody else's fault. So we get involved in all of this self-justification, and we have to tell other people about it, and we do it in very subtle ways. Now, some of you may not be very subtle because you're not very mature, and you probably have never uh, tried to hide that aspect of your personality, but for most of us, we we figure out how to go through the back door. And we figure out very subtle ways to let people know that so-and-so really mistreated us. They were wrong. And we come up with all kinds of ways where we don't really come out and say they're dirty, rotten, so-and-so, but we make sure that it's handled in a very subtle manner. We tend to strike out against these people, and so we have to deal with two vicious sins that are destructive to our own souls. I remember years ago had, a, had a, a, a good friend of mine going through a divorce and that's always hard when you're good friends with both the husband and the wife and the wife left him and I said whatever you do don't attack him because that's not going to make anything any better that just destroys your own soul I'm not going to talk to you anymore you're on his side that was it we want to strike out and have some kind of justice against that person, and we want it now. we don't want to wait, and we want to be the one to uh, instigate it because we think we know exactly exactly what they need. We have mental attitude sins of revenge and vengeance, and people stop and they think and they they'll daydream about how so and so is going to be held over a fire and twist and turn and be tortured and how they'll lose their job or people finally realize what a terrible person they are and they'll all leave and all these things that we come up with and we uh, sort of nurse our thoughts with those things over time as uh, as and finally we get past that. I think that's just sort of a normal sin nature response but you got to deal with it with doctrine every time it comes up and not allow yourself to go that way because if you do then what happens is it suddenly begins, subtly begins to dominate your mental attitude. And you may not become aware of it. I've watched this happen. I've seen it happen with me. I've seen it happen with other people. Next thing you know, you start getting involved with sins of the tongue, and you didn't intend to go there. You just want to have your own little private time over here where you could just think about how God is going to execute vengeance on this person, and they're finally going to get their uh, just desserts. But what happens is, is that gets into your soul, and the next thing is you start getting into trying to help God a little bit, and you want to make sure that other people understand their failures, so you get into a little slander, a little gossip. Uh, sometimes that comes out in prayer meeting when you want to pray for so-and-so. They just have some real spiritual problems, and we want to make sure that God will humble them. See, we just have this self-righteous uh, veneer that comes out, maligning we get into self-justification and one of the worst things that happens as Christians and I don't know why this is but if you are an evangelical conservative you figure out some way to justify everything with a doctrinal rationale so that they're really not doctrinal and I am they're a heretic and I'm not and see we shouldn't have anything to do with them and we have this way of always ultimately wrapping the issues up in some kind of doctrine to justify ourselves and to show why the other person is wrong. But the reality is, is we just need to keep our mouth shut and we need to keep discipline in our thinking and not allow our minds to ever go in that direction because it just leads to a, a, a cycle of deterioration in our thinking and before long we think, well, God's just never going to take care of it, so I better do it. And that's what I was pointing out earlier is that Jacob and his father Isaac and Abraham had a promise from God that God was going to give them the land. God was going to execute justice for them in giving them that land. It didn't happen in a 100 years or a 1,000 years or 5,000 years, but God is faithful and he will bring that promise to fruition because God is truth and God is right. The same thing is happening happens with justice. That there may not be justice in this life. You may look at that person and say, they're an unbeliever, they are unethical, they have gotten where they are because they have stolen and they have robbed and they've stepped all over everybody. And you're just like the psalmist. And you say, Lord, how long will the will the righteous suffer and the wicked man prosper. But eventually there is justice. Deuteronomy thirty two four locates the issue in justice. The key the key verse on vengeance is found in verse thirty-five of chapter thirty-two. That's where I'm headed. But thirty-two four, Moses says the rock, referring to God, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. Everything is just. He has Perfect knowledge, so he knows all the facts, he knows all the data, he knows exactly what needs to take place in order for justice to be brought about. He is a God of faithfulness, he is true to his word. He is a God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteousness, righteous and upright is he. And then the whole chapter really talks about the various attributes of God in relationship to the history of the nation. But then in verse 35, Moses instructs the nation to recognize that ultimately they have to take justice to the supreme court of heaven. Vengeance is mine. Now, sometimes God will avenge people and execute justice intermediately through people and through the institutions of man that he has established. But in verse 35, the focus is on God. Vengeance is mine. And the word that is translated uh, vengeance here uh, in the Hebrew is a word that when it's applied to man, mostly in the scriptures, it refers to somebody getting personal, getting personally even with somebody else. But when it's applied to God, it doesn't have that idea of vindictiveness It has the idea of God bringing about justice and properly avenging somebody. Why? Because he's omniscient and he knows all the facts, because he's perfectly righteous and perfectly just, and he is going to execute justice in time. So the the scripture says, vengeance is mine and retribution. Uh, God will take care of the proper uh, payment in time, So these are key passages, Psalm 94.1, God is a God of vengeance, that is the application of justice and righteousness. He is the one who stands up for the widow, the orphan, the one who is uh, mistreated and maltreated. The problem is that we get into mental attitude sin, so we get into the New Testament, we have various key passages on bitterness. Ephesians 4.31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Don't hold a grudge. Put this away from you to get rid of the mental attitude sins and get rid of the sins of the tongue. First you have to confess them, and then you have to deal with it. Every time that temptation comes up, every time your little nasty sin nature puts that out there for you to put a dig into that person or just make some... Uh, sarcastic remark or raise an eyebrow or make some comment uh, that's just your sin nature put all of that aside from you we should pray for those who want to hurt us that is one of the best things that you can do somebody's mistreated you somebody's gossiped about you maligned you hurt you rejected you whatever it is then the best thing you can do is make it a point it's not easy at first make it a point to pray for them Every single day, they pray that God would do the very best for them. Don't pray for that God would, you know, squash them like a bug. You want the best for them. And as you do that, what happens is the Holy Spirit begins to work on your soul, and before you know it, you have gone through a process where you really do want what's best for them, and that lashing out from hurt is no longer the, the motivation in your own soul. Arrogance has been uh, squashed. So when someone treats you unjustly, we need to keep, sh- keep our mouth shut about it. Don't go around telling everybody about it and playing the victim. We need to wait on the Lord. And that waiting on, on the Lord, does. Well, you don't, don't sit there five years down the road and say, well, you know, they, look at what they did, and they are still uh, prospering. Doesn't matter how much they uh, mistreated you. Today I heard a news report about Enron, and there were a couple of men that were interviewed, and they lost their life savings, lost a million dollars. Well, they could get, they could destroy their lives dwelling on vengeance and trying to get back. That doesn't mean that they shouldn't have go through the legal system and have justice executed. That's a different issue. It's a mental attitude issue related to uh, vengeance and playing the victim, Joseph understood this, and it, I think it took him some time. I think that was part of the reason he was in uh, prison for so long is that he had to work through this process in his own spiritual growth to reach a point where he could truly forgive and forget and not hold it against those who had mistreated him, including his brothers and uh, Potiphar's wife. And this is the principle in Hebrews twelve fifteen. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. In other words, what we're to do is exhibit God's grace to people. How many times have you slapped God in the face by your actions or by your thoughts in some way or another? Every one of us has. Every time we sin, every time we get out on a carnality binge, we are slapping God in the face. We are coming short of his grace. But... What we are to do is to demonstrate God's grace to people. They don't deserve it. Not one little bit, but that's the whole point. You don't deserve God's grace either. There's not one sin that somebody committed against you that Jesus Christ didn't pay for. And that really brings you up short when you stop and realize that this, no matter how horrible or egregious this action may have been, Jesus Christ paid for that on the cross. And God loved that person to die for their sin despite the egregiousness of that particular sin, no matter how horrible it was. So we are to deal with people in grace, Hebrews twelve fifteen says, so that result clause, no root, no little seedling of bitterness can spring up and cause trouble because once you get bitter and you start talking, then you have sins of the tongue. And as soon as you say, make one little comment here, one little comment, next thing you know it starts spreading and it defiles everyone that comes in contact with that. It's like an infectious disease and you can't ever get, uh, get those words back. So we are not to be the ones seeking revenge, but put it in the hands of God, knowing that even though human judicial systems may fail, God's ultimate judicial system will never fail. So the final principle is to always deal with people in grace. Now we come to the last part of the chapter, which describes the death of Joseph in verses 22 to 26. So Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years, not nearly as long as his father lived. In fact, he's rather short-lived. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's, knee, Joseph's knees. So that's only to the second generation from, uh, from Manasseh. And Joseph said to his brethren, now here's where he is demonstrating his loyalty to them. There's no reticence there. He fully trusts them. He, they, they proved themselves untrustworthy at the beginning. But now he entrusts his body to them. He says, I'm dying. But God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And he took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. This is an act of the faith rest real. He understands the promise of God that God is going to take them back to the land. God promised Abraham that they would be out of the land for 400 years, and then he would take them back and give them the land that he had promised to Abraham. And then in verse 26, so Joseph died being 110 years old, and they involved him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So Genesis ends with Joseph in a coffin, death. Je- Genesis began in perfect environment with no death. And this, one of the main themes in the book of Genesis is this theme of how blessing has turned to cursing because of man's volition. And man through sin destroys, but God in his grace redeems. And this sets the stage in Genesis for God's redemption that comes. Remember the word redemption means to buy out, to purchase. And we have the redemption of the nation from slavery in Egypt in Exodus. And that is what Ike is teaching right now. I started that earlier in the summer, and he's going to continue that. Uh, At times when I am out of town, and that will give him some sort of continuity to go through the entire book of Exodus. So that brings us to the close of Genesis, but not the close of the series. We need to go back and tighten things up, just review a few things so we have it in our head and can think our way through the book of Genesis again, and that should take a couple of weeks in terms of review. And then we will start a new series probably by the end of the month on Elijah and Elisha, 1 Kings and 2 Kings. So let's bow our heads in closing prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to have gone through this study of Genesis, to come to an understanding of the beginnings of the human race, beginnings of of, uh, sin, beginnings of grace, beginnings of salvation, uh, that we can see how you have worked in human history, what your plans and purposes are, because once we understand Genesis and the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then we can understand what happens in Exodus, what happens later on when Jesus comes, and what happens in the future in the events described in the book of Revelation. For Genesis is the foundation of the entire revelation of the Scriptures. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.